I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Lululemon. One of the job requirements at Goop is to take whatever new launches we have in the works out for a test drive. Whether it's our new Himalayan salt scalp scrub that lathers to a shampoo, our Goop Wellness Vitamin Protocols, or any of the G-Label pieces, we believe that feedback is the best way to consistently turn out the kind of products our customers expect from us. Lululemon believes this too, and what they do is pretty innovative. They invite athletes and yogis to take their iconic pants, sports bras, and technical outerwear for test runs. Their feedback helps Lululemon create products that support how you want to feel, no matter how you sweat, and informs the fit and functionality of each piece. No wonder they make what many would agree are the best yoga pants out there. For more information and for store locations, visit lululemon.com. Hi, guys. Every Thursday, Goop editors will be sitting down with provocative thinkers, industry disruptors, and culture changers. I'll take turns interviewing barrier-breaking guests as we talk about shifting old paradigms and starting new conversations. Today's guest, Dr. Mark Hyman, is the director of the Cleveland Clinic for Functional Medicine, which is doing some incredible, game-changing research. He's also the founder and director of the Ultra Wellness Center in Lenox, Massachusetts. Besides being one of the most prominent leaders in a new way of thinking about both health and chronic disease, he is also the author of multiple New York Times bestselling books, including his most recent, Food, What the Heck Should I Eat? I think we can all relate to that sentiment. The program in the book is essentially designed to give people the aha moment, which is not based on a lecture or a theory or a soundbite, but actually is their own body telling them what works and what doesn't. Dr. Hyman sat down with our chief content officer, Elise Lunin, to talk about his holistic approach to optimizing health and how we can better tackle the roots of chronic disease. We should all be eating foods that are low in starch and sugar. Nobody thinks we should be eating a lot of starch and sugar because we know it drives obesity and diabetes and chronic disease, including cancer and dementia and heart disease. Second is we should be eating a plant-rich diet, not plant-based per se, but plant-rich. 70% of our plate should be plant foods. After the conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you've got a burning or totally random question you want me to answer, hit us up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Now let's get to Elise and her interview with Dr. Mark Hyman. So let's start with food. What the heck should I eat? How, how did we get here? Why is there so much conflicting information about diet and nutrition and even science that seems in conflict? Well, if you're confused about what to eat, you're not alone. And it's not an accident. And the reasons are multiple, but it has to do with, one, the confusing nature of nutrition science, where it's hard to prove cause and effect. You take big populations, you give them a food questionnaire every year, and you try to see if there's a pattern, but it doesn't prove anything. Two, the corruption of nutrition science by the food industry, where you'll get you know 99% of uh, studies on artificial sweeteners by the food industry show they're safe, and 99% of studies by independent scientists show they're not safe. Same for soda, same for dairy, and so on and so on. So studies are corrupt and and actually funded by the industry. The government dietary guidelines aren't supported by a lot of science. In fact, there's evidence based on the National Academy of Sciences review that there's a lot of corruption on the dietary guidelines committee, 
meaning they are funded by the industry. They ignore huge amounts of data, for example, showing that saturated fats are not harmful like we thought and that low-carb diets are healthy, and there's a review process going on now. And then we have the government dietary guidelines confusing us all. We have food marketing by food companies that confuses us. We have health claims on the label like gluten-free. I saw a package of gluten-free, like horrible potato chips that were deep-fried in processed oils. And I'm like, this is not a health food just because it says gluten-free. <laughs> right. And uh, and we have public health organizations also saying things that aren't matching the science, like the American Heart Association and American Diabetic Association, Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, all are funded by the food industry. Uh, you get Trickster for Kids, which has seven teaspoons of sugar and three kinds of dye and full of starch, saying it's a heart-healthy food by the American Heart Association. It doesn't make any sense because mm -hmm. it's low in fat. Mm -hmm. So we have all these conflicting things. And then we have the media saying eggs are good, eggs are bad, meat's good, meat's bad, cholesterol's bad, eat butter, you know, coconut oil's awesome, then it's bad. So we're confused. And so what I try to do in food, what the heck should I do, is to try to come up with what are the controversies, what are the questions, what does the science show, and really a common sense approach based on science of what to eat and what not to eat in every category. So every chapter of the book covers, you know, meat, vegetables, fruit, nuts, seeds, poultry, fish, grains, beans, oils, sugars, beverages, all the things that we actually consume. Mm -hmm. And I go into the questions about each of those things and actually give people a roadmap, figure out exactly what to eat in each category in a way that's good for you, that's good for the planet and the climate and the environment, that's good for our society because it helps prevent chronic disease and the burden of chronic disease on our economy. It can even mm -hmm. help improve education by getting kids food that isn't going to mess up their brains. And even social justice issues and poverty and violence are all driven by, in part, our food system. Mm -hmm. No, it's a profound, profound issue. And as you mentioned, incredibly confusing. And one of the reasons that I think people in general just are lack trust, right? Like yeah. they don't trust medicine. They don't trust diet. It's sort of a let's throw our hands collectively up and just do whatever we want. Yeah. One of the things that I love in the book is that you bust a lot of myths like skim milk versus whole milk yeah. <laughs> or that oatmeal is healthy. Yeah. What do you think just sort of even scanning this incredibly long lit, like chicken is not healthier than red meat, which is breaks yes. my heart. Yes. Can you like, why we have followed every single recommendation that the government has given us. We've eaten less fat. Mm -hmm. We've eaten more carbohydrates. We've eaten less meat. We've eaten less eggs. We've eaten less mi whole milk. We've eaten less butter and we're sicker and fatter than ever. Mm -hmm. And so people are confused. And when you look at how we come to conclusions, it's often based on shaky science. So the idea that fat was bad was based on the idea that, that there was an association in populations between people who ate saturated fat and ate and heart disease. But when the studies were done that were experiments where you actually gave half the people butter and half the people vegetable oil, the ones that ate the vegetable oil died, and they had to stop the study. Right. So we actually have plenty of evidence. We just we just have these memes that don't let go very fast. Yeah. And oatmeal, for example, you know, we thought oatmeal was good because it has oat bran, which lowers cholesterol, and cholesterol is bad, and you shouldn't eat eggs because cholesterol is bad. Turns out that eggs are fine. The government has said in their 2015 dietary guidelines that eggs are essentially exonerated pun intended, mm -hmm. and that there's not a, a nutrient of concern any longer, that there's no association with heart disease. And that oatmeal, you know, has oat bran, but most oatmeal is refined oatmeal, most of it's sweetened. And in fact, in studies where they give kids oatmeal versus steel-cut oats versus an omelet, the kids who had this, the regular oatmeal ate 81% more food that day, they were hungrier, their blood sugars were higher, mm -hmm. and they had stress hormones coursing through their body, like cortisol and adrenaline, 
compared to the steel cutouts was 51% more food. Mm-hmm. So when you eat, and they were the same calories, same calories of uh, steel cut oats, same calories of regular oats, and same calories of omelet. And they had profoundly different effects in the biology because the quality of the food matters. If you listen to our government, if you listen to doctors and nutritionists and scientists, if you listen to the advice of professional organizations and weight loss groups and even the food industry, they all tell us that all calories are the same, that weight loss is about exercising more and eating less. But when you look at the research, that doesn't make any sense. Yes, calories are all the same in a laboratory when you burn them, but not when you eat them Mm because they change your biology because food is not just calories, it's information. And it, in fact, when you eat, for example, the oatmeal, it increases insulin. Mm-hmm. Insulin then creates inflammation. It increases stress response in the body. So it has very profound di- different effects, even though it's the same calories. Mm-hmm. That's why the quality of the food matters. And it turns out the starchy, sugary calories that we are consuming, you know, almost 300 pounds a year up together are profoundly dangerous. And that's almost, almost a pound a day per person per year. And I'm not having that much. So a lot of people are having a lot more. I mean, of the soda is consumed by 20% of the population. Wow. So when we have this going on, we really can't regulate our biology properly, and we need to understand that food can be used for good or bad and that quality really matters. So it's not so much how much you eat. It's about what you eat. And when you choose quality, and that's what the book is about, is about how do you find the right food that's the right medicine that's going to help your biology heal as opposed to get sick. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really, in every category, we can make mistakes and we need to figure out what they are. There are a lot of things I want to unpack in that. One thing that I think is really interesting that you talk about in the book is the power of food to heal. And I think it's interesting that people don't make that connection when they're so quick to swallow an Advil and understand yeah. that they're ingesting something yeah. that's affecting the way they feel, but yet somehow dinner isn't, isn't similar. Right. How do you bridge that conceptual gap? Well, uh, it's it's a concept until it's real. So in the book, I created a 10-day diet experiment, which is essentially to reset your biology in 10 days by taking out all the inflammatory, all the toxic junk in your diet and putting in all great food and doing it for 10 days and seeing what happens. And people have profound effects. I mean, we, we had a woman the other day in our clinic who was on insulin for 20 years. And in three weeks, she got off in all her insulin in just three weeks after 20 years. Another woman came up to me the other day. She says, you know, I, I saw your work and I read about it. I have an autoimmune disease. I have lupus. Um, and I went to the doctor. They're giving me very strong medication. I said, someone's, you know, su- suggested that I follow what you said and get off of gluten and dairy and processed foods. And she said, 80% of my symptoms went away in a few weeks uh, mm-hmm. just by changing my diet. It turned out she had celiac disease. It was mm-hmm. undiagnosed. And so food has profound effects. And if we actually take that and use food as medicine and we we can heal so many chronic illnesses food caused the disease can cure the disease and yet doctors learn almost nothing about food in medical school it's so interesting we get those those um types of letters from readers all the time whether it's your work or younger or um, dr gundry for example where they're sort of at their wits end and they're like fine i'll change my diet right. and suddenly they have yeah. a cessation of symptoms, and they're completely blown away. Yeah. It doesn't take long. Like, that's why I say, you know, you, I can talk for hours and hours, but it, it's kind of useless. You have to just try it. And yeah. and anybody can do anything for 10 days. And so the program in the book is essentially designed to give people the aha moment, which is not based on a lecture or a theory or a soundbite, but actually is their own body telling them what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know, we had 600 people go through this 
in 10 days, not only did they drop 7 to 10 pounds, did they have their blood sugar drop 20 pounds or blood pressure 10 points, but they had a 62% reduction in all symptoms from all mm-hmm. diseases, whether it's a migraine or irritable bowel or joint pain or rash or acne or postnasal drip, whatever it is improves if it's related to food and not everything is right 40 percent of people didn't have that much drop but but 62 percent mm-hmm. no 62 percent reduction in all symptoms and it was and everybody usually feels better in some way yeah so interesting too because i think one of the myths that we've created culturally is this idea that eating well means deprivation means somehow that it's a lack of nourishment when in reality that's the other major <laughs> feedback like the food yeah. is delicious yeah oh my god my Taste buds have changed, and now yes. I am into salad. Yeah, right. We, we, we have – I just interviewed a guy um, named Michael Moss who wrote a book called Salt, Sugar, and Fat, and his next book is called Hooked, you know, Free Will or Not, basically on food. And, and what we, we discovered is that the food industry has very sophisticated ways of designing food to make it addictive. And this is not, you know, some hyper, hyperbolic theory. This is actually what they do. They have taste institutes. They hire craving experts. They have things called the bliss point of food. And they are very sophisticated in designing that exact perfect way to get people hooked. And we know the biology of this now. It affects the nucleus accumbens in the brain, which is the addiction center. And it's the same as cocaine or heroin. And, and it's very tough for people to sort of reset. Artificial sweeteners have a thousand times the sweetness of, for example, sugar. And so people get hooked. Um, so the 10 days is a way to sort of unhook from that and to actually shift your taste buds. And it's extraordinary how quickly it happens. You know, Mm -hmm. we we see people changing, and it isn't about deprivation. It isn't about starvation. I do not recommend calorie restriction. I don't recommend counting calories. I think if you eat the right food, you don't have to worry about how much you eat. I mean, how many many cookies could you eat? You eat a whole bag of chips. Oh, I remember I used to. (laughs) But how many avocados can you eat? You're not going to eat 10 avocados, right? After the first one, you're like, okay, that's enough. Or after how much broccoli? And once once I gorged on broccoli, it was tough. It was really good broccoli, but I, I felt like a little full after. But, you know, it doesn't usually happen because yeah. the body self-regulates. Do you, Is there ever an intervention where you need sort of vitamins and supplements? Just thinking about, um, and, and please correct me, but that kids often with ADHD or who are on a very white food diet, which mm-hmm. I know that yeah. they can lack zinc mm. and zinc mm. can affect your profoundly affect your taste buds. Yeah. For sure. I mean, zinc deficiency does affect your taste buds and yes, you know, we, we need to retrain ourselves, but it's not hard. I mean, within a very few days, people can start to enjoy the pleasures of real food. And if you, for example, you cut out sugar for a week and eat a blueberry, you go, oh my God, that's so sweet. And if you are eating, you know, soda all the time and diet soda, you're going to say this tastes like cardboard and it's a beautiful, sweet blueberry. Mm-hmm. So it's really very quick the body shifts. But uh, in terms of ADD, it's it's often a profoundly nutritional problem. We know that diet plays a huge role, that gluten, dairy, sugar, food sensitivities, all the chemicals in food. Experiments have been done, randomized trials showing kids who add food additives versus, uh, you know, things without them actually do much different. And in fact, you know, if you look at uh, one study, they looked at red dye versus eating pomegranate dyed something. I drink, and uh, the kids with the regular pomegranate, nothing happened. The kids with the dye were bouncing off the walls. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's true, there's a lot of these kids with nutritional deficiencies. Uh, I'm just recalling a young man I saw who was 12 with severe ADD. Uh, he also had all these other health issues and horrible diet, asthma, allergies, gut issues. Um, and it turned out he had 
massive nutritional deficiencies, omega-3 deficiency, he had uh, vitamin uh, D deficiency, he had zinc deficiency, magnesium deficiency. So you're eating a very nutrient-poor diet. Uh, we need a nutrient-dense diet. We need to think about how many nutrients per calories we're getting. You know, mm -hmm. if you have a soda, there's zero nutrients per ton of calories. If you have broccoli, it's a ton of nutrients with very little calories. So you just have to think about food in a different way. It's like, what is the density of nutrition in this food? And how do I consume foods that are more nutrient dense? One thing that I think is interesting is it wasn't until I got to Goop that I ever really had like a micronutrient panel done yeah. or any blood work. And my yeah. dad is a doctor, so I'm a doctor's kid who never had proper health care. Yeah. Cobbler's um, kid who has no <laughs> shoes, right? Yes. Um, that's not fair, but I'm really good at diagnosing myself, which won't surprise you. Why is that not, and maybe it's not essential. Maybe if you eat a really great diet, you don't mm. even need to know, but it seems like it would help yeah. people ground in it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, it's one of the things I've done for the last 30 years is practice nutritional functional medicine and tested thousands and thousands of people. I've seen literally millions of data points of lab tests around this. And it's profound the amount of nutritional deficiencies we see. It's not rare. In fact, government's own surveys show that 90 plus percent of people are deficient in one or more nutrients at the RDA minimum level. That's how much you need to not get a deficiency disease like rickets or scurvy, mm. you know, or, or severe anemia, right? This is not how much you need for optimal health. And we're talking about 90% being deficient at that level. Vitamin D, omega-3 fats, magnesium, iron is massive zinc across the population. And this has profound effects because these nutrients are critical for every step of your metabolism. Every biochemical reaction require these to regulate your immune system, your brain function, your gut, your hormones, all require these. And we are so massively deficient. We live in a toxic nutritional wasteland. We eat nutrient-poor foods. Almost 60% of our calories come from commodity foods, which are subsidized by the government, wheat, corn, and soy, turned into wheat flour, white flour, high fructose corn syrup, and refined soybean oil, which have no nutrients in them. And and then we're consuming these at massive amounts, and the people who eat the most of them are the sickest. So sadly, you know, we're not only not eating nutrient-poor foods, we're growing in nutrient-poor soils, we're transporting foods across long distances, we're storing them forever. The average apple has been in storage for a year. If wow. you're picking it off the uh, off the tree, I mean, go go grow broccoli in your backyard, and then go uh, go to be, buy the best organic broccoli, or go to a farmer's market where they picked it that morning, and then compare it to some broccoli that's in the store, it tastes completely different, and the nutrients are different, and the density of the nutrients are different. This has been well shown, and organic ha has much higher levels of nutrients. So, I think you know we are unfortunately in a situation where. You know, we're under tremendous stresses. We're exposed to toxins. We have things that we never had to deal with before. And the nutrient density of our hunter-gatherer ancestors in their diet was massively more than it is for us. Mm -hmm. And so we can get by if we are super smart about food, but most of us do need the right nutrients and supplements. So what do you, what's the ideal diet? And I know you have, you talk about pagan diet yeah. and, um, cause even on sort of the right side of the debate, there's so much yeah. angst you know, yeah. are you vegan? Are you paleo? Are you right. keto? <laughs> right, right. Like, what's your, what do you Well, that's part of why I wrote the book because I, you know, hear this all the time and everybody's fighting with each other and the paleo folks say if you eat like a vegan, you're going to die. And the vegan folks say if you're eating meat, you're going to die and destroy the planet. And like, you know, not everybody can be right here. So what is the truth? And I think I once was sitting on a panel with a couple of friends. One was a vegan cardiologist. The other was a paleo doc. And they were arguing and fighting. And I'm like, listen, if you're paleo, you're vegan. I must be pegan. 
and I sort of made a joke. And then I went home and thought about it. I'm like, wow, there's a lot of common ground here. A lot of principles that are the same. There's a few variations, basically grains, beans, and meat mm-hmm. are basically the only things they disagree on. And I started thinking, what are the common principles that everybody would agree on that form the basis of sound nutrition that are backed by science and that are multiple ways of approaching that and very a variety of different kinds of diet and patterns. So the principles I talk about in the book, food, what the heck should I eat? And, and, and there really is about 12. One is we should all be eating foods that are low in starch and sugar. Nobody thinks we should be eating a lot of starch and sugar because we know it drives obesity and diabetes, and chronic disease, including cancer and dementia and heart disease. Second is we should be eating a plant-rich diet, not plant-based per se, but plant-rich. 70% of our plate should be plant foods. Uh, and nuts and seeds and lots of non-starchy veggies and good quality vegetables that are not super starchy and a little starchy vegetables, but not as unlimited. Uh, a little bit of fruit, um, not five to nine servings of fruit and vegetables. It's not seven servings of fruit, like seven servings of pineapple. It's two servings of fruit and like seven servings of vegetables or more. Uh, and we should be eating good fats, things like avocados and nuts and seeds and extra virgin olive oil and fatty fish like herring and mackerel, sardines. We should be eating even coconut oil and even grass-finished saturated fat is fine. I think there's really lack of evidence, and, and this is not my opinion. This is really uh, you know, overwhelming data showing that the link between saturated fat and heart disease is really weak. In fact, there's many studies that show that there's no link. In fact, the majority. Um, that we should be eating uh, diet. If we're eating animal products, we should be eating ones that are humanely raised, that are regenerative in terms of agriculture, that restore soils and soils protected by holding water, and that we actually can regenerate, called regenerate, it's regenerative agriculture. We can regenerate soils and we can regenerate lands, and actually it's good for the planet, good for the animals, and good for us, and the quality is better. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're having fish, we should have fish that's sustainably harvested or or, uh, or organically or sustainably raised. Uh, aquaculture can be fine, but a lot of it's really bad. Um, and these are just really common sense principles. And if we eat grains, you know, there are a lot of issues with gluten, and it's not a fad. It is a real thing. As a practitioner, I see it's one of the biggest toolkit things that I have to actually help people get better. And part of the reason is we've hybridized the gluten, plants, wheat, which are full of starch, but also full of gliadin, more different gliadin proteins that are inflammatory. And we've done all these things to damage our guts, then we get leaky gut, and that creates a whole set of inflammatory diseases that we see from autoimmune disease to allergic disorders to heart disease to cancer to diabetes to dementia and so forth. And then, you know, um, so we can have non-gluten grains like black rice, my favorite, and quinoa and buckwheat and amaranth and other things that are available. Uh, if you're not really gluten sensitive, you can have more rye and barley, but not unlimited amounts because these do, do act as starches. And for some people who are athletic and are healthy, they can be fine. But if you're the average American, one in two Americans has prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, 70% overweight, 40% are obese. They won't tolerate a lot of grains. People have autoimmune disease. If they have gut issues, also may not. And then beans, the same thing. You know, some beans are fine. But again, it's, it's, a, it's a tough to get all your protein from beans. You have to have three cups of beans a day to get one amount of you would get in a six-ounce piece of fish or, or grass-fed mm-hmm. meat. Uh, and so... That's really it. It's pretty simple concepts and principles. It allows you to you know, not exclude anything. Dairy is the other big question for people. I think both paleo and vegan folks think dairy is not nature's perfect food, which I agree with. I think there are a lot of problems with our dairy supply. We see 
cows that have been hybridized to create a, sort of this homogenous looking cow that you see in America that doesn't look like that in the rest of the world. And they have high levels of an inflammatory protein called A1 casein, which is different than goat and sheep. So it creates much more inflammation linked to cancer, to osteoporosis, to autoimmune diseases, to digestive disorders. Uh, it's not nature's perfect food unless you're a calf. And uh, so I recommend more sheep and goat if you really don't have a dairy sensitivity. And occasionally it's fine, but it's really the, what we eat on a daily basis that matters. How did you get here? So you, you know, I took a, I took an Uber, (laughs) (laughs) Um, not a Lyft. Um, So no, but how did you arrive at this moment in time and space and in terms of using nutrition? Like where, where did you take a turn in your practice? Oh, I didn't take a turn. I was always on this road. In fact, I started studying nutrition, gosh, 43 years ago. Um, and have been on that road ever since. Was it uh, and a I healing like, crisis or just no, interest? No, uh, it was just, I, my sister was at college and I went and visited her and she took me to the veggie room where they had crunchy peanut butter and really dense whole grain bread and honey and I ate it. I'm like, I'm never turning back. Yeah. And then I became vegetarian and a nice, uh, I lived in a, a house with a bunch of people in college at Cornell where we all cooked together and loved food and made delicious, healthy food, went to the farmer's markets and grew gardens And then I studied biological agriculture as a course in college. And in fact, uh, one of my roommates was a PhD student in nutrition at Cornell. And he gave me a book about nutrition against disease. And I just kind of went from there. And then I started really using it in my practice and studying and studying and studying. And I've been looking at the literature for 40 years. And it has changed. There's a lot of shifts Mm -hmm. that have happened. Uh, And and then, you know, I, I basically been using it as a practitioner for 30 years since I've been mm-hmm. practicing medicine to treat people and getting more smart about it and actually not having this theoretical aspect of it, but actually a very practical aspect where not only did I change people's diets and watch what happened, I could see what happened to their health and also to their lab tests. So mm-hmm. I had verification from thousands and thousands of patients of what happens. You know, I had a patient the other day who was overweight, who had cholesterol 300 and triglycerides of over 300, whose HDL was really low, which is a good cholesterol, never could lose weight. I said, well, why don't we try a ketogenic diet? Because she was really struggling. And I basically found within a very short time, her cholesterol dropped 100 points, her triglycerides dropped 200 points, she lost 20 pounds, her HDL came up 30 points, which you never see, by giving her basically butter and coconut oil and a lot of other fats. And 70% of her calories were fat. Now, that seems like heresy, but in fact, it works. And we know now, for example, I used to tell people who were diabetic to eat whole foods and whole grains and beans, low fat, and they would do a little better from eating their processed diet, but nobody got off insulin. And now it's routine that we get people off insulin. In fact, a study was published a few weeks ago that showed that of over 250 diabetics, type 2, 100% got off the main diabetes medication, 60% completely reversed the type 2 diabetes in a year, and 94% got off insulin or dramatically lowered it, and the average weight loss was 30 pounds or 12% of body weight, which is unprecedented in medical research. And you know what? There was not a single major media outlet that talked about this study. And I was like, how could this be? You know, this is, this is headline news. This is such a radical shift. It's not an incremental change. You know, when you look at when you look at medications, there's no medications that can do that, right? You've got a, you basically have got an incremental benefit. This is a quantum change in biology. Mm-hmm. What, why weren't they talking about just advertising dollars? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I watched the, 
I don't watch TV very often, but I'm in a hotel room or I'm in a conference. And I, I'll turn on. I All I see is pharma ads and food mm-hmm. ads and ads for insulin, ads for this. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate to say this, but our media is controlled by a very few companies. And thank God for podcasts and internet because it's been democratized. But the major media outlets are not talking about these things. We'll have more of Elise's conversation with Dr. Mark Hyman in a minute. In the meantime, let's talk about one of our partners. At Goop, we've sung the praises of both yoga and meditation from day one. These practices go a long way toward grounding and centering us and generally bettering the state of our well-being. And we're obviously not the only ones using our platforms to spread the good word. Lululemon is committed to providing access to yoga and meditation as tools for well-being to unlock real change in people and communities. Their Here to Be Social Impact program teams up with nonprofits to create access to yoga and meditation across social, physical, and economic barriers. And they bring it to life with public classes and workshops. Even Lululemon's retail locations are focused on building community with group classes and other resources. And their ambassador program asks the yogis, trainers, and mindfulness coaches who run Lululemon's public events to test new product and then report back with tweaks. So it's really no wonder their signature yoga pants are perfectly stretchy, comfortable, and performance-oriented. For more information and for store locations, visit lululemon.com. Okay, let's get back to our chat with Dr. Mark Hyman. What percentage of chronic disease do you think is created by a diet? What percentage do you think can be healed or controlled by mm-hmm. diet? Yeah, most of it. <laughs> I mean, look at the biggest killers are, are heart disease, type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's, cancer, stroke. These are all, all related to diet. There are other factors involved. For example, you know, toxins in our environment and stress and lack of exercise. But by far, the biggest driver of these conditions is food, and it's the biggest solution. And yet it's not anything that providers know how to apply or tell their patients about other than give lip service to eat better or eat less and exercise more. And and I think that this is driving the biggest burden in our society, you know, 40 in 2042, 100% of our federal debt will be from Medicare and Medicaid, meaning I mean, in the budget, meaning there's no money left for any of the other thing, military, roads, education, nothing else. And 80% of our three point, I think two or $3 trillion healthcare bill now, 80% is caused by chronic disease. It's staggering. It's and you, staggering. Yeah. And we don't have a healthcare system equipped to deal with it. It's acute care medicine. I'm at Cleveland Clinic. And, you know, we are a acute surgical hospital, acute care hospital, and they're extremely good at it. But now that the whole dynamic is shifting because we're moving from paying for doing more stuff to actually keeping people healthy. That's how you're going to get paid. Mm-hmm. And so their incentives are changing. And I think that's going to change healthcare. But it's hard because it's like asking a, you know, a ship captain to fly a plane. They don't know quite how to do it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, I think just the healthcare industry in general is not good at those in-between states, right? Like you need a diagnostic code, you need yeah. a definition of disease state, right? Before you can really interfere. Correct. And so yeah. people go very far without being helped. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really sad. We, we, we don't have a model that we can apply well. And that's what we're trying to innovate at Cleveland Clinic. And we see this. It's amazing. The results we're getting for patients that so we're seeing dramatic drops in costs and we're seeing improvements in outcomes uh, that are unlike anything 
seen before in healthcare. And uh, it's, we've been do- I've been doing this for 30 years, but now to have Cleveland Clinic behind us and us funding research on this and doing this, it's very powerful. Do you think that functional medicine is something that is just going to become even far more mainstream and that more conventional doctors will begin to adopt some of those practices of just thinking about people as more system-wide, yeah. like more holistic? Like, Do you think that's a yeah, shift? I do. I think it's inevitable. I mean, this is a train that's coming. Uh, I think uh, we now have a shift in science. This is not some fringe alternative treatment. This mm-hmm. is actually a way of thinking differently about disease based on emerging science. So, for example, you know, I was in a conference and this doctor was challenging me about what we're doing. I said, well, listen, you know, when we now know, for example, that the microbiome can cause heart disease and cancer and diabetes and obesity and Alzheimer's and autism and allergies and autoimmune diseases, how do you explain that with your current theory? There is no way to explain it. So you need to change your theory to meet the facts. And I think what happens is that doctors see what they believe. They don't believe what they see. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a challenge. And Mm -hmm. I think some are more open and there's more and more openness happening in the medical field. And I think uh, there is an exciting shift. And I think younger doctors are coming along that have open minds and that are looking for these things. Patients and consumers are driving the behavior and their doctors are hearing these stories of people coming in and seeing these changes. It's remarkable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of it starts like with pressure. I think the more people are armed with information, the more they realize that they can affect how how they express their genes and the more things like epigenetics come into play, then it seems like they can start pushing on their own doctors, asking questions, yeah. and it's com- yeah, uncomfortable. Yeah, people have to be empowered. Yeah. And you know what? The truth is most of the stuff doesn't even need a doctor. I mean, you, people get better just by changing their diet and changing their lifestyle. I mean, that's why I wrote Food, What the Heck Should I Eat? Because it's sort of a roadmap for people to sort of take control of this information, to be empowered to do it, to learn the implications. Because it's, it's broad. It's, it's personal, but it's also political. I think, you know, we don't realize that when we vote three times a day with a fork, we're having impact across the globe for what happens in the climate, in environmental degradation, in our economy, in our chronic disease epidemic. It's really a global problem and, and it matters. It's not just, Oh, what, who cares what I, whatever I eat. It does matter. Mm -hmm. And I think people, I want to be empowered to actually make different choices to actually help change their lives and their families' lives, their communities' lives and the lives of our nation and the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I loved, um, that moment in food Inc. when they're just talking, when they were talking about Walmart and how they're the biggest Mm-hmm. There's, I don't know if they still are, but at the time they were the biggest buyer of organics. Yeah, they are. Yeah, and yeah. how you can shift the market. Sure, they and are. Bring yeah. down prices for everyone. McDonald's says, let's have more lettuce in our hamburgers. It shifts the whole global lettuce market. <laughs> you know? I know. Although it's iceberg lettuce, which isn't really very good. Very nutrient I mean, the top, the top five vegetables eaten by Americans are pathetic. They're yeah. basically French fries, potatoes tomatoes in the form of ketchup and pizza sauce Mm -hmm. sweet corn and onions are okay and then iceberg lettuce which is essentially cardboard with water it has its merits so what what are you most excited it's good to put stuff on and for decoration it's good as a filler in terms of other major food trends like fasting or what do you have any feelings about any of that so so we're we are learning more about aging and our biology how do we optimize our biology because it's not just about not getting sick or treating a disease. So how do you actually eat for optimal function, performance of your brain, of your muscles, of your organs and tissues? And what we're learning is that the aging process is a disease of mitochondria. These are these little energy factories in our cells that produce 
energy from eating and from breathing. And they get damaged as we get older. And then we get diabetes, we get heart disease, we get dementia, we get Parkinson's, we get tired, we get weak. And what we know now is that the body needs a recovery period every day to reset and clean up the system. And what we have to do is essentially not eat after dinner and then not eat till breakfast. But most of us eat late at night and then we eat early. Uh, and we really need about a 14-hour period in the day for our bodies to sort of clean up the mess. And it also it's important for our brain to repair. And what intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating does is it's, it's like a fasting mimicking diet, which we know calorie restriction is the only thing that extends life by a third. So if you're 80, you'd be lived to 120, right? Which is pretty impressive in animal models. So you don't want to do that by starving yourself. I met a guy once who was like on the calorie restriction program and he ate five pounds of celery for breakfast, which doesn't sound like fun to me <laughs> at all. <laughs> and, uh, and it was low fat, you know, uh, low fat. And he was very tight and angry and upset and anxious person. I was like, wow, if I did that, I'd be upset too. Why extend that life? Yeah. So you live longer, but it feels longer. Yeah. And, and then, you know, when you look at these, these, Intermittent fasting diets, they actually do the same thing and they upregulate your stem cells, they improve your immune system, they increase your antioxidant enzymes, they clean up your mitochondria, and they help your brain function get better, they increase bone density, increase muscle mass. It's very profound effects. So I think that people can do that. Now it's not for everybody. If you're pregnant, if you have cancer, if you're underweight, you might you might not be able to do that. But if you're overweight, it's a great technique, and uh, and they're learn we're learning more about it. And then there's prolonged fasting they can use to cure diabetes for a few weeks. It's very mm, powerful. That's amazing and really interesting work in cancer, right? Cancer yeah. and fasting. Oh, yeah. Well, cancer. Yeah. I mean, even ketogenic diets. When you fast, you become ketogenic, which means you you actually shift from burning glucose to burning sh fat. Or ketones. So what's fascinating with cancer is that your your cancer cells only have one energy system, which is burning sugar. Mm -hmm. Your body can burn sugar and fat. So if we starve the cancer by not giving them any carbohydrate or sugar or starch, you switch to ketones, which they can't live on, and the cancer dies. In fact, there's amazing research on brain cancer, pancreatic cancer, melanomas, looking at reversing these really irreversible tumors and cancers using ketogenic diets. It's amazing. I could talk to you all day. Is there one final thing, one piece of research? Maybe it's the diabetes studies or anything that's like that you're really excited about? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this, this whole idea that, that the, the biggest scourge on the planet today is obesity and type 2 diabetes. It's going to bankrupt everything, and that condition is the driver of cancer, heart disease, and dementia. So it's, it's sort of like a one-shot thing. And uh, I'm going to be going to a food conference put on the British Medical Journal in Switzerland in June, and uh, there was an addendum put on that conference about diabetes revisionism. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm a diabetes revisionist, which means I'm challenging the dogma that diabetes, type 2 diabetes, is irreversible and that we can completely reverse this by using a different approach, which is the things we've been talking about from ketogenic diets to, to intermittent fasting to carbohydrate restriction. And, and we can see profound changes. And this is, if, if this data gets out there and if it starts to be applied at scale, I'm, I'm really excited about this. Exciting. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to be here and share with your audience these ideas. I think people need to be empowered about food and understand how to take control of their life. And that's really why I wrote the book. Yeah, it's a great read. 
Thank you so much for joining our interview with Dr. Mark Hyman today. You can learn more about his work at drhyman.com. Also, check out goop.com slash the podcast. Okay, on to that promised Ask Me Anything. Pam, who was writing from Manila in the Philippines, asked me, she says, Hi, GP, where did the name Goop come from? Well, Pam, I've told this story a few times, so forgive me for anybody who's heard it, but maybe it hasn't made it all the way to Manila. When I was trying to conceive of Goop, I knew that I didn't want it to have my name in it, like, say, Gwyneth Paltrow lifestyle, whatever, (laughs) some terrible name like that. So I met with a friend of mine who is a branding and marketing genius. His name is Peter Arnell. And I explained to him that I really wanted a word that could mean anything, that could be its own thing. And he suggested the word goop. And I thought it was terrible. And he said, no, it's perfect. Trust me, this is the name. And I said, why? This is like such a weird name. It's a bad connotation. I don't like it. And he said, yes, but it's your initials with two O's in the middle. And all billion-dollar Internet companies have two O's in the name. So I said, okay, what the heck? And thus Goop was born. Have a question? Drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this week's episode of the Goop Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share with your friends. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And for more info, head over to goop.com slash the podcast. See you next week.